Welcome back to This Week in the CLE, the now daily podcast where reporters and editors from Cleveland.com talk about the coronavirus. It's Wednesday, April 1st, but no April Fool's pranks here. COVID-19 is serious business. Although I will say that the mathematical logic we're getting out of Summit County's health board is so ridiculous that it sounds like an April Fool's prank. We'll get to that. I'm Cleveland.com editor Chris Quinn, joined by editors Jane Cahoon and Laura Johnston and reporter Evan McDonald. Everyone's still healthy. I don't hear any dry coughing. So far, so good. Doing just fine. Still healthy. Why are the projections for the coronavirus in Ohio so wildly different? And why, after days of trying to answer that question, do we still not have the basic information behind the most dire predictions? Ohio Governor Mike DeWine and Ohio Health Director Amy Acton have predicted a pretty ugly April for Ohio, with hospitals at double or triple their capacity and up to 10,000 new coronavirus cases a day. They base that on projections from Ohio State University and the Cleveland Clinic. The University of Washington has published its projections for every state, and the Ohio projection is mild, with fewer cases. We keep asking how people using math skills come up with such different information. Evan McDonald, you've done a lot of reporting on this. Let's start with the variables that go into these projections. So part of the issue is that everyone is still learning so much about the coronavirus every day. And even the Washington model, when new data was added yesterday, it changed and showed that there's a little bit more of a chance that we will see a bed shortage in Ohio. But that's still sort of unlikely under their projections. But the problem that I found was that when you don't know the data, you kind of have to make educated assumptions about things like infection rate, you know, the the chance of passing it along to someone else. Death rate is a big one. The total number of cases, we still don't have enough tests for those. So the big issue is that these researchers and experts have to make these educated guesses based on what they know, which at this point is not a lot. But beyond that, there are other things they look at, right? Weather is part of this? Yes. Weather is part of it. You know, people have theorized that the coronavirus, like other viruses, could be seasonal, like an influenza. Population density is a big one. The total population of an area. Unchanging factors like the capacity of local health hospital systems, bed capacity, number of ventilators available, things of that nature. Okay, so OSU, the Cleveland Clinic, the University of Washington, they're all working with the same data, and yet they still come up with different projections? They are. The big reason is that Washington has told us that they are going by death rate. And they say that that is the best indicator for how this will impact health systems around the world. And they are using data from other countries as well, like China, like South Korea, like Italy. Whereas the OSU and Cleveland Clinic models, they haven't told us specifically what is going into their modeling. So it's really hard to say at this point what is behind their numbers. Right. The secretive. I mean, the clinic is being unenlightening. And Jane Cahoon, you edit the Statehouse team, which has been trying to get what goes into the Ohio State numbers. Where are we? Well, as you said, they have refused to release their methodology, but a spokesman said that they they would be releasing 
more information later this week. With Washington, at least, they're they're putting their cards on the table. They're, they're telling us what they're measuring. And that alone, I would think, would give it more credibility because you know what goes into it with the clinic and OSU. It's this secret sauce. The one thing we know about these projections is that very soon we will know who was right. By this time next month or shortly thereafter, the coronavirus will have played out and we will be able to grade the people who made the projections. As for why DeWine and Acton are going with the much more gloomy predictions, Evan, you did talk to someone who had a theory about that. Well, both Seth Richardson and I spoke to several experts who told us that essentially the reason that you want to plan for the worst is that if you don't, you'll have a much bigger disaster on your hands. And the state wants to be prepared for that worst case scenario because the numbers are changing all the time. We're learning new information every day. So projections can change and they want to be ready because if you plan too well, the worst criticism you're going to get is that you have spent too much money. But if you don't plan well enough, you could have a a lot of debts on your hands. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Should all of us be wearing coronavirus face masks? Is the official recommendation of health experts changing? Yes, we asked the same question yesterday, but this is a rapidly changing story. We've talked for months about the seemingly nonsensical advice of public health officials to the public not to wear face masks. Over and over, we've wondered why, if the masks do no good, doctors and nurses are desperate to get them. As we discussed yesterday, an international movement has started to get people to wear masks, and now the White House and the CDC might recommend that we wear them. Ohio Health Director Amy Acton seems to be moving into the column favoring face masks. Jane Cahoon, you edited that story. What gives? Well, first, I just wanted to clarify, because I heard on the radio this morning somebody mischaracterizing this, that the N95 masks, the rigid ones, are the the ones that the healthcare workers on the front lines really, really need. Uh, And then something called a surgical mask is also in need uh, for healthcare workers, but it's not the rigid one. And then these homemade DIY cloth ones are a totally, totally different thing. But in any event, our statehouse reporter, Laura Hancock, asked Dr. Acton about this on Tuesday, you know, what she thought about perhaps this upcoming guidance from the federal government about wearing face coverings. And she got really animated and and she said she was really looking forward to this guidance because face coverings, in fact, can be effective at containing people who are infected and spew or breathe on other people. And as we know, there are a bunch of people walking around who are asymptomatic, who are carrying this virus. and this could really prevent them from spreading it. So she, she well, seemed to be embracing this. Yeah, and the, the latest news out of China is they've done some testing and about a third of the people who have the coronavirus don't have symptoms. So that's a pretty frightening number. If the CDC and the White House do come out and say, okay, people should wear face masks, what happens next? Do you think the advice would be, hey, Joe living at home, sew your own mask and leave the N95 mask for the medical professionals? Or might they wait until the mask shortage is dealt with, which we're told is coming, and then make the recommendation that people should start thinking about masks? 
Boy, I don't know about the timing, but I mean, what Dr. Acton was saying yesterday, I, I would expect the federal government to say the same thing. Do not use the N95s for your personal use. Those need to be reserved for the healthcare workers. And if you have surgical masks, you can keep a couple of those, but donate the rest to a nursing home or your local health department. Let's go on the theory that the CDC and the White House will say wearing masks makes sense because, well, it always did. Laura Johnston, you worked with reporter Mary Kilpatrick on the simplest step-by-step instructions available for making your own. I asked this Tuesday before we had some of these answers, so I'm asking anew, how hard is it to make a face mask? It's not that hard, especially if you have some sewing experience. The extent of my experience is pretty much attaching buttons that fall off blazers, but I did follow our directions last night and made my own following the directions while watching the Tiger King. It took me about an hour. So the basics is that we have 12 steps. You use two pieces of six by nine inch fabric and some elastic. The design doesn't even require a metal piece to go over the nose, just a pleat. So you can make these pretty fast with a sewing machine, or you know, you can even try just a needle and thread at home. Our videographer, John Panna, put together a video with one of our favorite people, retired former Cleveland.com reporter Karen Farkas, who demonstrated why she was such a great reporter with her very clear narration of the steps for making masks. Jane, you and Karen are still close. How many masks is she making and who's getting them? Well, I agree that Karen is great. And Mm -hmm. uh, it it won't surprise you to know, given her productivity as a Cleveland.com reporter, that she has made 57 masks. And uh, they are going to places like Mercy Hospital in Canton, Akron Children's Hospital, and the Hudson Police and EMS. I watched a lot of Mask How To videos Monday night. And so I can objectively say that the step by step story and video on our site are the clearest to be found. If anybody listening wants to make a mask, start at our website. I expect by the end of this weekend, we will all have our own cotton face masks. I'm Chris Quinn. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What is so secret about the number of people who have the coronavirus in Summit County, Ohio, zip codes? What bizarre leaps of logic are Summit County health officials making to determine that they can release numbers per zip code once those numbers grow? They argue that the smaller the number, the more chance there is that people diagnosed with the virus will be identified. But how does that even begin to make sense? Maybe the Summit Health officials would do well to tap into all of the elementary school online at-home education that's going on. Laura Johnston, what's going on here? Maybe. um, I have no idea their reasoning. They say they don't want to violate people's privacy or give a false sense of security to some people. So until they reach some unspecified number of cases, they're not going to give us a breakdown. So, so far, Summit has provided a map of the county broken down into zip codes with the zip codes that have at least one case colored in blue. Summit had 131 cases as of Tuesday, so this map is almost all blue. There's like 30 blue zip codes and six white ones. It is not very instructive. Cuyahoga County's Board of Health insisted for weeks that it would not release location or demographic information on coronavirus patients, but we kept pointing out the ridiculous of their privacy argument, and they finally started releasing the information Friday. Now people in other counties are asking us to fight for them, too, and we did take that fight to Summit, but I didn't see this coming. 
a zip code map with no numbers. I guess it does serve the purpose of saying where it is, but isn't knowing the how much it permeates a small geography pretty important for avoiding the virus? I would think so. Yeah. Summit doesn't show us the severity or any hotspots. Um, Cleveland.com's data guru, Rich Exner, has been showing per capita rates by county based on Ohio Department of Health numbers. And those are a lot more instructive. As of Tuesday afternoon, Ohio had about 2,200 cases in 71 of its 88 counties. And Cleveland, Cincinnati, and Columbus have all had really hard hit areas. We talked Tuesday about uh, Rich's per capita examination of the infection rates, and it showed Northeast Ohio had six of the top 10 counties. And in first place was Mahoning County with Youngstown. But we also wondered whether those results were skewed because Northeast Ohio might just have a lot more testing going on, so you see more cases. Jane Cahoon, you worked with Rich on a story specifically about Mahoning County, and it seems to support what his per capita finding showed. The Youngstown area is a hotbed of coronavirus. Right. Mahoning County leads the state both in deaths and in the um, per capita measurement. And Rich found that they're they're running like 3.6 times the, the statewide average and well above any of the other counties. Mahoning's rate was 66.9 cases per 100,000 people. And statewide, that rate was like 18.8. So the uh, county health department told him that the cases are being attributed to community spread, which is no surprise. Uh, and they haven't been concentrated in any one area. But like Summit County, they, they wouldn't provide any other information about the locations or, or case specifics. The death rate, unlike some of these other variables we talk about, is pretty exact. And so with them having the high death rate and also being identified by rich as high in per, per capita, I think it gives a lot more credibility to the um, per capita findings. Anyway, it's this week in the CLE. Does the coronavirus change election rules in Ohio? Should the people collecting signatures to put a boost to the Ohio minimum wage on the ballot be allowed to move their efforts online? Jane Cahoon, this was a story out of our Statehouse Bureau. What's going on? Well, as Andrew Tobias reported, this campaign that that wants a ballot issue in November to incrementally raise the minimum wage to $13 an hour in Ohio, uh, went to court this week in Franklin County Common Police Court seeking to have the rules relaxed for them. They want more time, like they want till August 21st instead of July 1st. They want to be able to do online signature gathering and lower the number of signatures that are required and also waive the requirement that they gather signatures in at least 44 of the 88 counties. You know, this one sounds a little wacky to me because the rules for ballot initiatives are so specifically prescribed. We've written uncountable stories about it because of all the initiatives that come up, and they're pretty much trying to just get rid of them. This is entirely new. Is there any chance that they'll actually get that dispensation, or is it more likely that judges would say, hey, look, a crisis happened. You know, none of us like it, but we've all had to change our lives. You're going to have to start over again next year. So I would never venture to predict what a judge will do, especially a judge in Franklin County, where that judge surprised us recently when they when they asked him to postpone the election and he didn't do it. 
But in any event, as you said, the law clearly spells out what the requirements are. But, you know, we're we're living in an extraordinary time. So who knows? Yeah, it's an extraordinary time that's causing us all to change what we're doing. We're not getting any kind of exemptions to, <laughs> to, change, <laughs> to change our rules. Right, we have to adapt. Let's keep the election conversation going. Is it possible we could go to an all-male election in November? Projections show the coronavirus could be on the wane in the summer, but the Spanish flu did that in 1918 and came raging back in the fall. In case the coronavirus did that, should we be ready with a presidential election that doesn't rely on in-person voting? Well, I think you've heard from some readers on this, Chris, who, who are raising that very idea. The Secretary of State, Frank LaRose, doesn't really want to talk to us about that now, but but we're exploring this question with, with some other people. Rich Exner looked into this recently. There are many states that allow vote by mail, and there are four that do it statewide, Colorado, Hawaii, Oregon, and Washington. And as you know, in Ohio, anybody can vote by mail right now through the absentee process. So it, this does seem like a question that should be on the table here. Well, and you're right. I have a text messaging thing that I send out a couple times a day about what we're thinking in the newsroom and questions we're trying to, to answer. And I sent out a question about the uh, all mail-in ballot for November today and was overwhelmed by people saying, yes, we should do that. We should just do that. The thinking is if you plan for that starting now, you can be fully ready and not be rushing like we are for for this primary. And our colleague, Chris Ranowski, raised an interesting point yesterday that a lot of the poll workers will probably still be afraid in November to work the polls. And so we might not have enough people to do it. So even if Frank LaRose doesn't want to talk about it, a lot of other people are. And I think we'll keep talking about it. I, when we do our story, we'll have to talk about it again on our podcast. It's this week in the CLE from Cleveland.com. Have we flattened the curve in Ohio? Have social distancing and our other efforts worked to slow the spread of the coronavirus in the state? We were told that absent social distancing, the number of coronavirus cases would double and triple in days, as has happened elsewhere. And as we entered the curve a couple of weeks ago, that was happening. But when you look at the last week, we're getting about the same number of new cases a day. No curve. Is that evidence of success? Jane Cahoon, you work with our numbers guru, Rich Exner. What do you say? Well, I say, my personal opinion is, yeah, it could be. The the percentage increase that we had of 14% on Tuesday was the smallest daily change in Ohio since March 10th, when we only had like three cases. And then the days previous to Tuesday, the changes were somewhat comparable, like 17%, 18%, 24, 31, 23, and 25%. So we haven't seen a giant spike, but, you know, as we know, the, the worst is yet to come. Is it possible that the numbers are deceptive? We all know that Ohio is one of the worst states in the country in administering coronavirus tests. Is it possible we're not seeing lots of new cases just because we're not doing the testing that would identify them? Yes, that's entirely possible. Dr. Amy Acton, the state health director, has said this on a number of occasions, that this is the tip of the iceberg. Rich Exner is focusing on hospitalizations as a key metric because those are pretty specific. Somebody gets sick enough, they're put into the hospital. It's not like 
testing is missing them. Are those going up in larger percentages than the, the number of confirmed cases? Well, it varies a little bit. Rich drilled down in particular to look at the ICU hospitalizations over a week's time, starting Tuesday, March 24th, when we had 62 of the ICU hospitalizations, to this past Monday, when that number grew to 163. Um, The day-to-day increases ranged from 13% to 21.3% over that time period. So, so he kind of took both scenarios and looked at, you know, if it increased 13% day over day, that would take us to 1,152 cases by April 15th, a little before we're supposed to hit this peak. And then if we took it on the high end, the 21.3%, that would take the number up to over 3,500 by April 15th. So that's kind of a big swing there. And last week, I think Dr. Acton said that we had 1,300 vacant ICU beds, but but they're building up that capacity. Yeah. And I, I think by any measure, if we had not started the social distancing, it would probably be much worse. It's this week in the CLE. What will the end of the coronavirus crisis look like in Ohio? What will be our new normal? We know that someday the crisis will end. We'll go back to our offices. We'll shop at grocery stores with less fear. But how do we get there? Evan McDonald, we set you off last week to try and find answers to those big questions. What are some of the things you learned? Experts told me that essentially what can come out of a period like this is not going back to normal, but the evolution of a new normal. So that could be everything from the way businesses operate. Maybe they will see some benefit and efficiency from having people work from home. It could be a massive mental health crisis that could come out of this. You know, people who are prone to depression or anxiety might really struggle during this time. And we're going to have to be ready to deal with that. It could change societal norms. You know, it might be a while before we're comfortable shaking hands again. And it could also cause us to rethink some social safety net programs. People scrambled quickly to implement things like free COVID-19 testing and paid sick leave. And experts have argued that if those programs were in place in the first place, we would not have had to, to scramble to make sure that those are available. I do wonder whether I'll ever be comfortable shaking someone's hand again or sitting in a movie theater where someone else is coughing And I've been struggling to think of a precedent that we can learn from. And, you know, I don't think the Spanish flu 1918 works because things are so different. I know that World War II during that period caused profound societal changes, but it wasn't the same kind of fear. It was wartime. So the things were tight. A lot of the men in the country were away. And when they all came back, life got more or less back to normal. The closest I can come is the depression did permanently affect a lot of people. My dad grew up in the depression and man, he was the biggest miser you'd ever met for the rest of his life. But I'm, I'm not sure. Have you been able to identify anything that offers us a lesson for how this would go? Or is it really that much unknown? It really kind of is that much unknown. You know, there are certain parallels we can draw to certain aspects of this, the depression, as you mentioned. And another good example is after 9-11, there was this shift in the country for people being more patriotic. 
And experts have wondered if this could result in something similar, more of a community atmosphere, people looking out for each other, whether it's something like that could arise out of this. But what some people have pointed out is that even though that this could result in a new normal, it's also an opportunity to make some things better. For example, it could also result in people just being more grateful to the simple conveniences in their life. You know, the ability to go to a store, go see their friends, just simple pleasures like that. It's going to cause people to reassess and just be much more grateful to the way things are. Laura Johnson, Jane Cahoon, what do you think the ultimate long-term lessons will be for you? I think Evan's right about the gratitude. I don't think I'll ever for take it for granted to be able to go visit my family or to go on vacation. I feel really bad for everybody who had these big spring break plans that had to cancel them. I was supposed to go down to Columbus on Saturday to see a Columbus crew game with my nephew for his seventh birthday. We'd been planning on that and he's really bummed about his birthday. So I don't think we'll take those little joyous moments for granted nearly as much. Jane? Well, if I could bring up one of my favorite topics, the wearing of masks, I just wonder, you know, whether people are going to continue to be cautious, whether we're going to see a lot more people in planes and movie theaters wearing masks uh, in the future. Well, and yeah, does that change the flu? I mean, there are countries where it's both flu vaccinations and wearing masks that greatly reduce the spread of the flu. So, you know, maybe one of the results of this is that we all are better about not spreading the flu. It might depend on how bad it gets right where you live. Like if you live in New York City, your behavior might be forever changed. Whereas you live in a small town where you didn't know anyone who got coronavirus, then it might not. Yeah, I, we were talking about this this morning and, and most of us still don't have a direct connection to somebody that has it. A couple of us do. That's going to change by a month from now. Lots going to change by a month from now. It's this week in the CLE. Okay, that's a wrap. Thanks, Jane and Laura and Evan. Your story on the new normal is one of the best things I've read, as was your piece, breaking down what goes into these projections. I finally understand it. You're doing tremendous work in this crisis. I'm glad you're here. Keep it up. Thanks. Tomorrow, we'll be talking about the new unemployment rules, which seem to be confusing a lot of people. Also, the rules for small business. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.